Hello, and welcome to Saint Sinners and Salvageables, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsburg, and each week through the end of the 2022 election season, we'll examine the issues surrounding the casting, counting, and certification of this year's vote. This week, we're very pleased to have Major Garrett and David Becker with us. They are the authors of an important new book, The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Major Garrett's day job is as chief Washington correspondent for CBS News and the host of the Takeout Podcast. And the host of the Takeout Podcast. He's also been correspondent for the National Journal and the senior White House correspondent for Fox News. David Becker works with election officials around the country through the Center for Election Innovation and Research. The Election Officials Legal Defense Network, which I co-chair, is a project of David CEIR. David uh, previously worked at the Pew Charitable Trust as director of their elections program and is a senior trial attorney in the voting section of the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. David also serves at CBS News as election law expert. So welcome, guys. Uh, thanks for um, joining us. And. Um, Let's begin with why you decided to write this book. Why this time? Why this place? Why why is this book important? Major? So, Ben, when we started this project, it was much smaller in scope than it turned out to be, than the book that we ultimately produced. The original impetus behind this book was, colloquially speaking, a love letter to election workers who put on the 2020 election. Why did we think they deserved a love letter? Well, because they were getting abused and in some cases terrorized, certainly slandered by the former president and others around him in the Republican Party. And we thought that was completely baseless and wrong and harmful. And we wanted a book on the shelves for this period of time to say no. In fact, this election was not what it's being mischaracterized as, but actually not the result, but the process behind it, a deeply American triumph of hard work, collaboration, creativity, innovation, under very testing and trying circumstances, a global pandemic. Voting, as most people comprehend instantly, is not a socially distant exercise, nor is preparation for voting. This is intimate, close work, and to do that, in the teeth of this global pandemic, without vaccines, with only social distancing and some minor mitigation strategies, with all of that to achieve the largest turnout in the history of a presidential election, to do so with the most diverse population ever to participate in an American election, with lots of adaptations in terms of how votes were cast, where they were cast, voting centers, moving of precincts, all sorts of variables, We did this amazing, deeply American thing. We should celebrate it. As my memories of a child in America growing up, we did. We celebrated exactly these kinds of things where we did something hard without a roadmap and we used Yankee ingenuity, remember that term? And we did it on behalf of everyone, collaboratively, cooperatively, and that's what happened. And we thought there was this runaway slander going on We thought, no, if I could, damn it, that's not what happened. Let's write a little small little book to say thank you to those people who achieved this really great thing. 
Not the result again, but the process. Well, understandably, Ben, that was not, uh, let us say, red meat for most publishers. They're like, we'll pass. Thanks. Good luck to y'all. And we finally found a publisher in a very small advance to do this very small project. And then it grew before our very eyes with more and more revelations about what led up to January 6th, the depth of denialism within the White House itself, how there were so many more people involved and that it had a structure and a semi-coherence behind it. And as we say in the book, scabrous legal theories that suddenly took on relevance that had no basis would not would be laughed out of any law school in this country, even the bad ones. And we thought, no, no, this is a bigger project. We've got to enlarge this. We've got to wrap our arms around a lot of things. And so we did, and we produced a book that is loyal to that first intent, but tries to wrap its arms essentially around every headline around this election for the better part of two years. Yeah, I, I would just add, um, first of all, it's a little it's a little odd answering this question from you, Ben, because I think most <laughs> listeners of the podcast know that the real expert about this is on the other end of the microphone. Um, <laughs> Undoubtedly. But um, and and I've been I, I've been very fortunate to work with Ben over the course of many years. And um, Ben, along with his colleague on the other side of the aisle, Bob Bauer, um, really saw the the attacks on election officials early on and identified this as a threat. And I, I, you know, I want everyone to understand, I mean, this was something they identified in the early part of 2021. And we came together and, um, and, and made their, um, their brainchild, the, the election official legal defense network, a reality, precisely because we were worried about the toll it was taking on these professionals who had achieved this great success in 2020. And then as, as major points out quite rightly, you know, in the, in the latter part of 2021 and early 2022, we started learning more details about the corruption that was taking place inside um, the, the, the administration after it had lost the election and the machination it, it undertook to um, attempt to use the the institutions of government, the DOJ, the DOD, the DHS, and, and others, to try to um, overturn or prevent the will of the people from um, uh, from 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 resulting from the result that they had chosen, and uh, so the book became a little bigger after that because I think um, uh, you know we've uh, we've talked about this before, Ben. I mean we, the um, I mean, we're in a really concerning period of time right now. Um, and the degree to which the attacks of democracy are undermining the civil servants who run our elections, the professionals who run our elections, and ultimately leading to candidates who um, are spreading false rhetoric about the security of our elections. Um, that, you know, I think Major and I both talked about kind of having a, a, a calling to write this. And, and one thing. And ben, I want to add, uh, because you and I have known each other a long time. Uh, you were at the RNC for many years. You understand, as Bob Bauer does, what a good election looks like. You understand what a election that is worthy of litigation looks like. And you were involved in that. You know those things fundamentally. There are hotels where he's had, yes. had several month-long bills because of that. <laughs> and, and, ben, and Ben, from different perspectives, you and I both share something that everyone at the highest levels of national politics shares, which is that wondrous and also helpless feeling on election day. Mm 
when you're the reporter, you've talked to all the people who run the campaigns, who know everything and who write the speeches or who give the speeches. And they think they understand and know everything about the outcome. But fundamentally on that day, they don't. Everyone knows that they don't have that power. And on that day and from that day forward, they wait for the people to confer who gets it. That's a beautiful, pregnant moment in American politics in which you understand and are reminded every election day that how much you think you know and whether the money has been used or you had the right strategy or gave the right speech, you're no longer in control of. All those things you were controlling are now handed over and you wait for the consent of the people to tell you what's going to happen. That's why election day is my favorite day of the calendar every year because that moment is beautiful and powerless and exactly as it should be. And we wrote this book in part to remind people about that essential truth. We say in the book, the big truth is made up of a lot of little small truths. One of the small truths is the people do have the right to confer consent. And what people don't have the right to do is pollute the idea of how that consent is tabulated. Very well put. You know, one of the one of the things that I think is most confusing to the average voters thinking about this is something you write about in the book and set it up as an inherent contradiction, which is uh, you, you paint a very scary hypothetical in the beginning about how the democracy could unravel in uh, in a election denialism scenario, but you also write. Our elections are more secure, more transparent, and more accessible than ever before. So there are those two conflicting sort of um, sort of thoughts going through the American electorate now. Explain that a little bit. How did we get in this unique uh, situation of imminent disaster with really well-run elections? Yeah, and I, I want to be clear. Major and I both talk about this. I, I, we hear the term "scary" a lot about the beginning of the book, and I think it is scary. We're, but we're—it's not a prediction. We're not predicting it. It's more of a warning of a possible path. Um, but you're exactly right. Um, you know, when you look back on the 2020 election at the objective facts around it, um, it—the election officials of this country somehow managed the highest turnout in American history by any metric, 20 million more voters than we'd ever seen, 160 million total, two out of every three eligible voters voting, the highest percentage turnout we've seen since uh, universal suffrage, since the 19th Amendment. Um, and they were under-resourced. Congress didn't give them enough money. Their state legislatures didn't give them enough money. And they did this all in a global pandemic where you can't run an election socially distant. You have to go to the office. You have to have your staff there. Um, and this is at a time where we didn't have vaccines. We didn't know everything about transmission of COVID. People were still dying, a thousand people a day. And um, election officials pulled that off. And then you look at all the structures that were in place that prove, that document conclusively that the election was the most secure, transparent, and verified election in American history. 95% of all ballots were cast on verifiable, auditable, recountable paper. That's the highest percentage in modern American history. That includes all of the ballots in all of the battleground states. There are states like Georgia 
South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and Pennsylvania that had significant percentages of digital or non-paper ballots in 2016. In 2020, all of those states were all paper. And um, uh, states audited that paper. We had more audits than ever before, confirming the tabulations were correct. Um, the uh, famously in Georgia, where they counted all the presidential ballots three different times, three different ways, once entirely by hand with observers. We had more pre-election litigation to clarify the rules than ever before. And again, I feel odd talking about this to you, Ben. <laughs> but um, I mean, there's you know the, the campaigns are well staffed with good lawyers. And they, when they don't like the rules, when they think the rules disadvantage their campaign in some way, they will let the courts hear about it. As will national parties, as will state parties. Exactly. And they will bring they will bring that litigation and responsibly they will bring it before the election as early as possible because they want the rules clarified by election day. We have more pre-election litigation than ever before. Uh, seven out of eight cases were decided in favor of Republicans. I think probably some of the more famous ones were um, the cases where uh, drop boxes were limited to one per county in Ohio and Texas. Democrats didn't like that rule, but they exhausted their remedies and that's how the cor courts ruled and the rule of law uh, held the day. And by election night, by the time the polls closed, everyone knew what the rules were and what the playing field looked like and could no longer complain. And then of course, after election night, we had more post-election litigation than ever before. Um, the the uh, six over 60 cases heard before judges across the country, including multiple Trump-appointed judges, not one court found a shred of evidence indicating widespread fraud or malfeasance. Not one court found a shred of evidence indicating that the outcome was wrong. And, you know, it, it, it seems like maybe even people in the Trump campaign knew that because they chose not to um, have recounts done in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, as was their right. They could have had statewide recounts in all three of those states, as Jill Stein did in 2016. Um, but what they would have found is what you know better than anyone else, Ben, which is that um, 10,000 vote margin in a statewide race, that might seem like a small margin, that might seem like a close race, but in recount world, um, that's almost a landslide. You know, that's not... The, the cases you've litigated, the Minnesota 2008 Senate race, the Florida 2000 election, now those were close cases. With We've been thrilled with 10,000 vote margin. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, so. And, and Ben, as you well remember, there were other states not named Florida that were close in 2000, much closer than the. Much closer than me. In 2020. Yeah. You know, and uh, another thing to David's point, and you know this also, Ben, because you worked on this, as both national and state parties have. In 2020, we had the highest number of election observers, bipartisan observers who go through the process. So the parties can have confidence in what they're seeing. And this is this is something that's actually carried out. And there's training and there's engagement. And they were there. Yes. I was just going to say in Detroit uh, on election night and afterwards, when we were watching video of the Trump supporters uh, banging on the doors and the windows, um, what they didn't want to acknowledge was that there were 200 observers on the other side of those doors and windows watching the county pro counting process under Michigan law, and half of them were Republicans and half of them were Democrats. And yet here we are, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is which is in a in a place that seems very very tenuous. But just to give uh, our listeners a little bit of historical perspective, we have had really difficult elections before 1876. 1960, 2000. 
you both are students of history as well as the present. Is 2020 and 2022 and 2024 different? And if so, how is it? Different, yes. Yes. And here's the biggest difference, Ben. And we also talk about 1800, the first transition of power in our country. Uh, very tight. Uh, the, the books written about that 1800 election are riveting. Uh, there, there, there is a, a political drama there uh, worthy of the best Hollywood screenwriters. And you don't have to amp it up at all. Just say what happened. 1824, the corrupt bargain. Andrew Jackson is enraged that he didn't win the presidency because of a uh, a close election that went to the House of Representatives and he loses in the so-called corrupt bargain. 1876, um, that is an election that was unresolved for weeks on weeks and weeks. A special commission had to be created. The resolution of it actually had very little to do with a verified count of the vote, but a deal meant about the future of Reconstruction. 1960, 2000. What makes all those different, Ben, is this. In all of those close elections with enormous stakes involved, at no point did any of the participants leading their party or in the position of the presidency denounce, slander, question, or undermine the process by which to yield a result. Never, 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 never. 2020 is a singular event in which the sitting president of the United States not only did that, but started doing that before ballots were even counted and cast in 2020. That, that's exactly right. I mean, we talk about this quite a bit. I mean, in 1960, there were concerns about the election. It was one state that decided the presidency, Illinois. And um, Vice President Nixon conceded and presided over the joint session. He didn't spend the next several years delegitimizing the election. He did what most politicians would do, which is he ran, win the ran next, for office in two years, right? I think go, he ran go for win the next California election. governor in 1962. Go to the next election. Um, Don't stomp on the one you just lost narrowly. Go to the next election. Precisely what Richard Nixon did. Even after Watergate, even after he left office, he didn't wander the country, um, you know, calling Archibald Cox a rhino, you know, delegitimizing everything that it had, said the deep state and the federal government was out to get him and he hadn't done any of these things. He walked the beaches of San Clemente, which is his right, um, you know, and and Vice President Gore, of course, um, uh, after uh, in something, you know, better than anybody. Both campaigns litigated a legitimately close election with able legal counsel and exhausted their legal remedies. And once the rule, once the final court had ruled, Vice President Gore didn't like it, but he did what any patriot would do, which was to stand up, concede which President-elect Bush the best and preside over the joint session of Congress, which elected then soon to be President George W. Bush. Um, we've seen something very, very different over the last, uh, mo actually more years. I talk about the 700 days since the November 2020 election, but the delegitimization of our election process that has um, that has come from former President Trump has um, has been going on for some years and it's having a debilitating effect. And let's talk about the implications, the real world implications for um, for the future if election denial takes root in our process. Obviously, the 2022 election is sort of a inflection point for that, given candidates on the ballot and the way the results are accepted. But talk also in the bigger picture about what happens if election denial takes roots and its implications really on both parties for being able to govern. 
So if it takes root, this unique proposition, which we started, we the people, consent of the governed, dissolves because there's no consent. If you deny consent, you deny legitimacy. If you deny consent and legitimacy, you deny the requirement as a citizen to acknowledge the rule of law. I mean, one denialism leads to another. This is a domino effect that can't be stopped. And it's not something that will pass, as I hear some Republicans say to me whisperingly, well, when Donald Trump leaves the stage, whenever that is, this will all go away and we'll go back to normal. Normal won't be touchable if this becomes embedded. This idea that satisfaction with result, meaning if my side wins, is the determining factor of my conference of legitimacy. Meaning if I'm happy, I will accept. If I'm, if I'm unhappy, I will not accept. The requirement of democracy in a constitutional republic, which is what we are, we are not a pure democracy, and Republicans like to remind me of that all the time, and I acknowledge that readily. One of the obligations is you watch the process, you participate in the process, and when it yields a result, you accept. Even if you've campaigned hard, even if you have legitimate fears that the winner could do things or act in ways that you might find harmful to your short-term or medium-term interests, that's one of the burdens. That's why it's hard. That's why it wasn't there before us. Because if it were easy, lots of people would have done it. It would have sustained over generations and millennia. It didn't. We created this thing, and this thing is hard. And sustaining it requires some basics. And if denialism takes root, those basics will run right through our fingers. And the structures that make law predictable, make law enforceable, and make society itself governable will begin to disappear. Yeah, I think one of the things we've been talking about quite a bit right now, the danger is coming from kind of the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party and is almost entirely there. And when we, sometimes when I talk about Democrats or the center left and left's responsibility here, people will say, oh, no, no, you're being morally equivalent. And this is not moral equivalence. This is not 50-50 right now. I think everyone would acknowledge that. But it's also not 100-0. I mean, it's, there, there, is, there is some of that. The seeds are planted on the left. Um, 2000, 2004, 2016, yeah. Democrat. And, absolutely, which we all go into in the book. Yeah. We don't shy away from that in the book at all. And, and one of the things um, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, I, I remember when that draft executive order was released to the public that that Trump um, drew up that would have authorized in November of 2020 that would have authorized the Department of Defense and the military to seize voting machines. And I remember that draft executive order hitting me like a ton of bricks. Um, and it isn't just because it's it's chilling to think of a sitting president uh, abusing his power in that sense, and especially the military on American soil to take. Um, uh, authority away from the states. It um, it struck me because the first page and a half was dicta from a federal court case that had been brought in Georgia by left-leaning hacktivists complaining about the paper voting machines that Secretary of State Raffensperger had put in place in Georgia. And thank God for that. Thank God that we had paper ballots that we could go back to in Georgia. That was prophetic. 
and due to a lot of people and some Democrats as well in Georgia working towards that. But they were they they wanted different paper ballot machines in Georgia. They still haven't gotten any remedies. But the arguments they had made were then used by the losing presidential candidate to justify an abuse of power by the federal government. So this is something that can infect Democrats and the left as 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 it has with many on the Republican side and the right. Um, you know, I, I've been um, if it becomes just another campaign tactic that that's just a way to win temporary uh, political power by denying elections and claiming that any election that you lost was stolen, um, we're lost. I mean, because there's no way that both sides don't eventually adopt it as a tactic if it's the only way to compete on on even ground. And Ben, you know this better than I do, or David does, on social media, you can find videos that Republicans have put together putting every soundbite of every Democrat who's questioned an election in 2000, 2004, 2016 in a string. And I would only say, uh, hello, the answer to denialism is not deeper denialism. It's a phenomenon that can come back to uh, to fight both parties, which I think is truly underappreciated. Both, both parties yeah. and then the entire structure writ large. I imagine Senator Boxer would like her vote back from that um, from that earlier session where she was the one Senate vote. Uh, I believe that was 2004, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, because this is, no one's seen this. Um, and I don't want to. And Democrats didn't storm the Capitol. Right. And they didn't try to write an executive order to seize voting machines. They're not morally equivalent. But all I'm saying, I'll repeat it. The answer to denialism is not deeper denialism. Full stop. Great point. Uh, we're talking with Major Garrett and David Becker the authors of The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie, available uh, really pretty much everywhere you might uh, normally look for books. Um, so I want to turn uh, for a second to uh, the, the kind of persistent phenomenon that's coming from this, which is that 30% of the population, according to poll, does not believe in our election results. And uh, I can tell from the book, you would agree that you can't really sustain a democracy with that level of distrust in the fundamental mechanism of election. So describe a little bit what's being done to combat that. Yeah, so so it's interesting. We, and again, this is something we've talked about quite a bit and that um, you know, it's, I guess it's conceivable that 30% uh, not having confidence in elections would be sustainable if it was evenly divided by each party and it was a minority uh, of each of the electorate. But right now, it's almost entirely within the Republican Party, and it probably makes up a majority of the Republican primary electorate, certainly as we've seen in results in- It's a nominating in, cohort. Yeah, Arizona, Pennsylvania, um, uh, Michigan. Um, we've seen very established- Republican secretaries of state, very good Republican secretary of state, secretaries of state defeated um, in their attempt to get renominated at convention in places like Indiana and South Dakota. And um, and one of the things that's most troubling about it is that 30 percent has been so resilient to facts. Um, ben, you were a part of a, a, one of the most important pieces written on this. Um, the, the report called Lost Not Stolen, the, tr- the, the facts about the, the 2020 election that where you were joined um, by uh, Judge Tom Griffith and Judge Michael Ludig and Ted Olson and others um, really looking at the facts in each of the states. And the facts have not been an antidote to this sickness. It hasn't really moved the needle at all. 
And um, I, um, I mean, we do talk in the book about some prescriptions here. One of the prescriptions is, is political, which we have no control over. I mean, if if election deniers um, who are, have been, I think, are generally considered to be weaker candidates on the Republican side in many of these races, if they lose overwhelmingly um, by a large percentage, that would be one possible that could change the incentive structure. I also feel very strongly that um, we need to have accountability on those who have been inciting the election deniers and inciting the violence in many cases. Um, and we're seeing that with DOJ investigations, the January 6th committee investigations, what's going on in uh, Fulton County right now, which I think is an important investigation, and even civil investigations in New York, um, defamation lawsuits against Mike Lindell and Fox News, et cetera, um, uh, challenges to bar licenses, which I think is really important. I think, um, you know, for, for those of us who are lawyers, we see the disparity between what Trump says on Truth Social about the declassification of documents and what he puts into what the lawyers are willing to sign off on in the pleadings, lawyers being very cognizant of the fact that they have sworn an oath to the courts and that their bar licenses could be at risk. So I think that accountability is going to be a necessary factor. Um, I also have to say, I, I'm, I, I also acknowledge, I hope um, realistically that even if all of that comes, it's not gonna magically fix the damage that's been done in a short period of time. I think this is gonna take decades probably to fix. And, and let's just talk briefly, Ben, if you'll allow me about the arc of the Republican party, you know it better than I do, but the Republican party uh, through Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, even Richard Nixon, uh, George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush has shied away at times of temptation from purity tests. But you have to believe this in order to be a Republican. Well, we're at that stage now where you have to believe this to be a good Republican. That is to say the election was stolen. And I'm not sure if that 30% that keeps showing up in the polls is a hard and fast, I've convinced myself because of some certain amount of evidence that the election was stolen, or if it's a proxy for, I don't wanna give up on the Trump movement. And I feel if I move away from this, I will be giving up on the Trump movement. I will lose my viability as a Trump supporter. And because I'm so devoted to him as a political leader, I don't want to say anything other than this. That is to say, it's a proxy for lots of other commitments and loyalties to the Trump movement. I'm not sure. I leave open the possibility that it is at least partially that. The people aren't like dead set. Well, I've proven myself through all this evidence that I've reviewed that the election was stolen. No, I just don't want to give up on Trump and I don't want to give into the media. I don't want to give into the Democrats. So I'm just going to say it. I don't know sure if I really believe it, but. It's kind of where I'm going to set my comfort zone. There, if there's some wiggle room in that, that gives me hope. I believe there is the possibility of that wiggle room. And I would just contrast Donald Trump and his approach to this thing, the Republican Party, which is a legacy party in this country, that didn't used to do that. And at times was tempted by that and turned against that resolutely in terms of rhetoric and approach to membership in good standing in that party. And if I can just add, I think it, it, it strikes me that the title of your podcast really gets at the core of this, the saints, sinners, and salvageables, if I have that right. Um, the, that, that, that we're all kind of wondering in that 30%, how do we divide it up amongst those three? Um, you know, we know we can name the people and there are many more that people don't really know well, but we can name the many people who are conservative Republicans of principle who've stood up to the attacks. Um, you know, whether it's Liz Cheney and um, uh, Kinzinger, uh, Mitt Romney, 
whether it's secretaries of state like Brad Raffensperger, whether it's county level officials like Bill Gates and Jack Sellers and Stephen Richer in Arizona, um, whether it's state senators like Ed McBroom in Michigan, there's a long list of people in the saints category. Um, and even, you know, people like Vice President Pence. Um, the, the, the sinners and salvageables are harder to get a hold on. And, um, you know, I think we wrote this book I, and I hope you can see it in the book. There, there are things we wrote in this book specifically with an eye towards the salvageables that, that there are people that if, you know, if, you know, we wrote a section about what if Hillary Clinton's campaign with the aid of president Obama had done the same thing in, in late 2016 and early 2017, or come close to doing the same thing. We couldn't get all the way there. It was really difficult, but um, it was, you know, if it, I think most reasonable people would look at that and say, oh, yeah, that would have been an abuse of power. Yeah, we should have. That shouldn't have happened. I mean, Ben, we we go. I mean, I still think I, I didn't know you at the time, but in 2000, when I was at the Justice Department, we got very strict instructions, not even to talk about the presidential election from the DOJ. And that was the right thing to do. The sitting vice president was a candidate, um, even if he hadn't been, even if it had just been D's versus R's. The campaigns had good lawyers. They were fighting it out in court, in state and federal court. The DOJ had no role in that. We were told that ex extensively, and we didn't, honestly, it was the right decision. Well, you know, the, the title, Saint Sinners and Salvageables, uh, I chose because it's like a Rorschach test. One of the phenomena in this country is that right now the divide is so great that Everyone agrees there are saints, sinners, and salvageables. They just look at it from a completely different perspective. So for the last 22 months, that 30% of denier number has not budged. And there's been very much a phenomenon of the saints and the sinners not talking to each other at all. And that 30% number is where it is. So let's talk a little bit about solutions. And if the great disinformation fight over the last 22 months has not succeeded in budging that number, what's the honest reason that that's not occurred? And what do you do to fix it? Just a little existential question for you. I'll just say briefly, one of the things that would be funny if it weren't so troubling is the degree to which people who have worked their whole lives for conservative Republican principles and politics. Uh, people like yourself, people like Judge Ludig, I mean, um, people like Brad Raffensperger are so quickly dismissed as rhinos. Um, one of my favorites is when on social media, they actually spell it R-H-I-N-O. I don't know what the H supposedly stands for in that, um, but are quickly dismissed. People who have devoted their lives to conservative causes, who hold coherent conservative principles worthy of debate. Um, I mean, Judge Ludig, it still it still blows my mind that Judge Ludig could be dismissed in this way. One of the great conservative legal th thinkers of our generation. And you're right. I mean, these the, it's it's just resilient. This 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 um, uh, this belief that um, uh, that some hold of, uh, that the election was stolen and, or even could be stolen. Um, I get back to accountability. Um I, I think that's a key aspect of it. I think, um, you know, some of the other things we talk about in the book, um, and you've been incredibly helpful on this, Ben, is talking about adequately funding our elections. 
Um, you know, that one of the one of the things the election deniers bring up quite a bit are the um, the philanthropic support of election officials, sometimes called Zuckerbucks, which I played some some role in making it available to anybody, including red states and Republicans, to help them educate voters about how to vote in a pandemic. That was all upheld by courts. Um, it was completely proper, but it wasn't plan A. It should never have been plan A. Government should fund elections adequately, give election officials the resources to bring people in, to show them the transparency, the redundancies that exist in elections um, and which they can learn if they if they volunteer to be a poll worker, which is a really, you know, anyone who has any doubts about the system, those doubts uh, melt away pretty quickly once you see why you're showing up at 4 a.m. to open up a polling place and the boxes you need to check and the observations that need to be made and the redundancies that exist and why you're staying until midnight after the polls close because you're doing the same thing. Um, but this is, I think you're right. You've been one of the leaders in talking about this, trying to get trying to get people talking to each other, um, people who are interested, regardless of their politics and democratic stability, um, that uh, if, if we can't if we can't believe in elections, um, that way lies lies madness and violence. And that's not good for anybody. I don't care whether you're in the business community or in the faith community. And I think your leadership and Bob Bauer's leadership has been really key here. So as you know, Ben, I'm a journalist. So I have a phrase, uh, credible journalism will always outlast incredible politicians. And I mean that in the classic definition, incredible politicians, meaning a story that is written that a politician says that's a lie or that's a fabrication. If it's a true story over time, that truth will prevail. And all the rantings and ravings of any political figure, left, right, or center, won't withstand the truth that's embedded in that journalistic work. Well, I believe that of all facts. And as we said earlier at the beginning of this, these facts aren't going to move. And there will be an exhaustive and deeply passionate, energetic effort to continue to deny those facts, but they're not going away. They simply aren't. And the people who made them true aren't going away. And so I believe there's a long game involved here. And that's not helpful for 2022, and it may not be helpful for 2024, but the long game is real. And the evidence is not going to move. The facts are not going to move. And the Americans who participate in making these procedures workable and true are being stressed. Some are quitting. And this is worth noting. Some are so stressed and so have been felt so harassed and demonized that they are quitting this valuable work and they need to be replaced. And in some jurisdictions, they're being more readily replaced than others. But this is a new stressor and it concerns David and I deeply. But I still believe in the essence of the American experiment and those who make it real for themselves and for the communities in which they live. And that is the most optimistic thing I have found and I return to as we have written this book, that this thing that we talked about, the 2020 election and all the ways it was an achievement worth noting and celebrating, wasn't because of some large company, wasn't because of some large structure of government that by itself made it so, it was by all sorts of Americans participating, collaborating, and cooperating on their own, by choice. Not for power, not for prestige, and certainly not for money, because none of those things are involved in day-to-day -day granular election procedures. What is involved is the continuation of this great experiment. And they're there, and they're going to continue to be there 
And they're the things that give me the greatest reservoir of hope. Major's a big optimist and his optimism is contagious. I'd like to think myself an optimist, but I'm not as much of an optimist as Major is. But I, I, I do share something very much with Major, which is the inspiration I'm finding from election officials. We've talked about the onslaught of abuse that they've faced over the last 22 months. Um, and some are leaving, but more are staying. And I also think about the fact that there has been a, a ceaseless effort to corrupt these election officials all across the country in the 10,000 election jurisdictions. Grifters have gone to various counties trying to corrupt them to get access to voting machines so they can continue the grift. They know the voting machines. They know the documents won't show any fraud. They don't care. They need to con- they need to find stuff to continue the grift. Um, and uh, and to quote Mel Brooks to um, to protect their phony baloney jobs. Um, but think about the number of election officials who've actually allowed themselves to be corrupted. We can count them on less than one hand. It's, you know, Mesa County, Colorado, Berry County, Michigan, Coffee County, Georgia, and that's about the whole list. I mean, there's, there's maybe a couple others out there, but it's really not many, which means that there are thousands and thousands who've been pressed to corrupt their values. Republicans, people who voted for Donald Trump, who know the election wasn't stolen, and they have withstood that onslaught. And they've withstood it while they have other things to do. They're preparing for a major election. I mean, there's not a, um, no pun intended, um, there, there, there is a um, there, there there is a significant possibility that we see turnout that is very high in 2022, akin to 2018, which was the highest turnout midterm in about 100 years, and we could see similar turnout to that in 2022. I think it's probably more likely than not. Um, and so they're preparing, and they're also dealing with harassment and abuse and threats still to this day. So let's end in the couple minutes we have left with solutions. You each get to uh, briefly wave your magic wand and give us the way to fix this problem, both short term and long term. Uh, no, no wand for me. Uh, the Senate, uh, in a bipartisan basis, is working on the Electoral Count Act, which is a clarification of something that has long needed clarification, but not for the reasons that manifested themselves in 2020, a grotesque misinterpretation of what the equities involved in that underlying law were. But on a bipartisan basis, the House and Senate are moving that forward. There is now a commitment at the leadership level to make that real, those changes real, and part of the new legislative firmament of our country. That's an important answer to 2020 for both parties to be involved in. That's a signal to the country at large, and it's a signal to election administrators that, yes, th- things can be clarified and clarified on bar- a bipartisan basis. Uh, there can be more state legislative and federal support for elections um, and election maintenance. Um, those are the two things that are at the top of my mind, and I don't think a magic wand is required for either. Um, and the and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I, I'd... First of all, agree on the Electoral Count Act reform. I, you know, when Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer agree on something, it's probably a good idea. Um, and I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that both houses have they have different versions, but the versions aren't very far apart. I'm hopeful we can reconcile those. And and as we've talked before, electoral the Electoral Count Act reform doesn't prevent what Donald Trump attempted to do in in, in 2021. Um, that was already prevented. 
It just, yes. there's no cheat code in the constitution that allows the vice president to decide he doesn't like the outcome of the election and to change it. But, um, but the, it, it, it does clarify things and it prevents a tiny minority or even a single member of Congress from engaging in mischief to score political points. There need to be larger, both raise the threshold for objections. But I think this brings a greater point of consensus around election administration procedures. One of the things I've noted is that the election deniers use the fact that elections are very esoteric. The election administration, you get down into the weeds fast. There are so many checks and double checks and redundancies and and it, and they vary by state and jurisdiction and they're all they they all work together as a patchwork but the fact that most don't understand it that they don't live this like we do means that they're ripe for disinformation in this field and there are consensus aspects of election administration that whether they come from the federal government or come from the states are good ideas and a lot of them then again you know better than any other are outlined in the report of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration from 2014, which you co-chaired with Bob Bauer. And that was a real effort to learn from election officials about what they thought was a good idea, what wasn't a good idea, where there were legitimate differences of opinions. But, you know, keeping clean voter rolls is a good idea. Everyone wants to do that from the most liberal Democrat to the most conservative Republican. Um, trying to give people options to vote so they're not all packed in on election day with long lines so they can vote early in person if they want, that they might have access to a mail ballot if they choose. Those are largely consensus ideas that come from red states and blue states, from Republicans and Democrats. And I don't think we're ready to get to that level yet, but I think it, it is helpful to at least acknowledge there is consensus in this space, despite kind of the, the polarization that the fringes would like to create around some of these issues. Well, here's a one magic wand thing. Uh, I would very much, if I could magic wand this, de-emphasize the ready use of the word suppression and the ready use of the word fraud. Not every change to a voting law is suppressive, even though some might find it restrictive. Restrictive and suppressive are not the same thing. And we criticize in the book, President Biden's rhetoric describing the Georgia law as Jim Crow 2.0. When you say something is Jim Crow, there is no other rhetorical place to go after that. There isn't. And there were laws changed in other jurisdictions that were worse than a Georgia law, but no other rhetoric could be applied because you'd already maxed out in Georgia. That rhetoric does not incentivize people to learn about what actually happened. It only animates their most baseline fears and suppression and fraud are used with a kind of ease and casualness that obscures much more than it illuminates. Really great points, really great discussion. Thank you both, Major Garrett and David Becker, the authors of an, of an important new book, The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. You've been listening to Saint Sinners and Salvageables, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm Ben Ginsburg, we'll see you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.